Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast all about the awesomeness of birds with a side portion of environmental collapse for good measure. This week, my special guest in the nature Armageddon arena is Dr. Brian Briggs. Brian is a conservationist and musician on a lifelong quest to tune into the natural world. He is both a manager of an internationally important nature reserve in Wales and the singer-songwriter for the band Stornoway. Stornoway were the first unsigned band to appear on Later with Jules Holland and their three acclaimed albums and three EPs combine Brian's two great passions, music and nature. Their most recent release, 2015's Bonksy, was a top 20 album and featured the songs of 20 different species of bird. Throughout his career in conservation, Brian has developed exceptional field skills and a rich knowledge of species and habitats. He loves and cares deeply about nature, so working outdoors to protect wildlife brings a measure of sadness. But it also brings daily miracles of beauty and inspiration. And it is this power of the natural world that is expressed in Stornoway's music. Brian says, I'm a nature manager, but I don't manage nature. I nudge it and fight it and kick it about on a small scale, but really it manages me and my days. It is my church and its power shapes and drives everything I do. Brian, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hello, Kit. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. The pleasure's all mine. I wanted to ask you before we get into talking about the five birds that you've chosen to talk about today. In my introduction there we mentioned that you've been on a lifelong quest to tune into the natural world i just wondered if we could talk a little bit about where that interest in nature and wildlife developed at what age and whether it was wildlife that came first or was it through music that you were drawn to wildlife well i suppose the answer as to whether it's music or wildlife is that it's always been both really from quite a young age i've been interested in both and i grew up in the countryside outside of bristol in the west country and it was I sort of grew up underneath in the sort of shadow of a wood, really, in a wooded valley. And my parents fed the birds in the garden, so I was interested in in seeing birds come, you know, up to the kitchen window, as many people have been over the last couple of years. And I also remember getting quite excited by buzzards. Um, I don't think they were as common back then, actually. But anyway, they, they used to soar above the garden, basically nest in the woods, and then soar out above the uh, the valley and I remember being quite excited excited by buzzards <laughs> and um, and I think you know my reading material as a youngster was a, was heavily nature themed I actually I was looking through some books this morning because I'm going to give give some away to my nephew and I found an old sharks and whales book of mine which had my kind of scrawly child's handwriting in the first page. And uh, yeah, I remember it well. So I'll pass that on to a new home. But yeah, my grandparents, my granddad in particular, was keen on nature and he passed on a lot of his books to me. Uh, My dad is a paleontologist, actually. So he is a naturalist of sorts, but day to day, he isn't, you know, particularly interested in birds. But yeah, it was there in in the blood, I guess, and um, and I lived in a in a, a good location to you know immerse myself and get out in the woods and you know develop that interest, I suppose. Excited by buzzards is a cracking song title, if ever you get <laughs> up, by the way. And when did you first develop your love of bird song in particular? I don't 
Well, I actually do remember, I suppose. I, I think it was when I, a lot later in life, really, after university, my first job was in the woods near Oxford studying great tits. I learned how to attach and ring small songbirds, really. I, you've probably heard about bird ringing, and um, I was trained in that, and the person who trained me was really good on bird song identification and I knew I was already interested so I was asking him you know to tell me what the different species were were that we could hear and I remember him telling me you know little trademark features of different species that that help you kind of lock on to what they might be and one one in particular I remember from those days is chaffinch which has got a really nice kind of of jangly descent at the end of the song and then finishes with a little sort of sneeze And obviously the great tit itself has got quite a distinctive teacher, teacher call. And I think it just really opened my world up, really. I think it kind of made me feel much more involved with what was going on in the woods. And because I suppose as as my skills developed, I also then learned how to pick up differences in individual species calls, you know, when they respond to something like a predator coming through the woods and then you know you feel even more part of the action then because you can actually look up and think oh maybe there's a sparrowhawk coming along and you know often that would be the case so that was quite exciting I guess. Yeah definitely I was talking to Kerry Gardner a previous guest about this and it when you are out and and when you tune into the sounds that you know you can be on your own in the woods or you know, in my case, I'll be walking down by the river with the dog and you could be on your own and feel quite isolated. But because there's so much going on and when you tune into it, this cacophony like up above you and all around you, it it really doesn't feel like you're alone. You know, just you and the dog or whatever. It it, it sounds just busy, you know, like there's all sorts going on, particularly at this time of year when all the all the small birds are getting together in these sort of yeah. group. it's quite raucous at the moment, I'm finding. Yeah, you're not just tuning into that specific habitat and that environment. I think to an extent you're also tuning into the, the seasons and the, the turning of the planet on its axis, really, because, you know, this time of year I've noticed over the last couple of weeks red wings arriving. Yeah. And, you know, most of the time you don't see them. You just hear this kind of thin sort of buzz as they whiz overhead and, uh, and even sometimes under cover of darkness. But uh, just having tuned in and learned that call I guess you know for now me that's a real sign of the changing seasons and I kind of it transports me as well to places where I've heard some of these birds in the past as well the red wings in particular for me it's associated with with mid Wales because this time of year October half term for many years I've gone away to Wales and basically cut myself off from from the phone and everything and just spent a few days in in the wild out there and yeah red wings really noticed streaming through and talking of specific bird songs your last album bonksy featured the calls and songs of 20 different bird species including brent geese green shanks skylarks but there's one track specifically where you really go to town uh, in terms of the birds and that's lost youth where you have this red grouse almost being Part of the, the percussive introduction of the song. Still lies hiding in the shadow of the mountainside. We are lost. You know, very much not just in the background, like, you know, maybe another artist would use birds in the background. And then 
later on you've got this drumming snipe. Examining each other for the final test. We are lost. Which is just again very much part of the fabric of this song. Absolutely, yeah. Can't take credit for those wonderful recordings. They are actually um taken with permission from sound recordists who post their well their recordings up on Zeno Canto. Have you come across that website? I have actually. I use it after every episode, and I go and I do yeah. choose, choose the little clips to to put in the background of each bird uh, that we talk about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the quality of some of those recordings are absolutely incredible, and must have in some cases taken days of you know hunting, really. I suppose for to get those recordings. Yeah, I think that's probably why i've not done it myself it's it's kind of laziness by but and, and the fact that there's such amazing stuff already out there um but yeah we had so much fun weaving songs and and calls into the bonksy album lost youth yeah you're right it that we really put them kind of front and center the snipe is a favorite moment again that's something that i've kind of got a memory of first time i've really really heard them doing that in the wild it was in upmore nature reserve near oxford out on the wetland there uh, when I used to volunteer, so that was uh, a definite. I had to go in there, and <laughs> and the red grouse has just got such a kind of almost comedy sort of chuckling song, and we just wanted to. I think throughout the album, really, Stornoway lyrics tend to be quite rooted in the outdoors anyway, and in particular habitats and environments. We wanted to kind of help you know immerse the listener that one step deeper by actually you know bringing some of the birds in that you would find in the environments that I'm singing about. So in that particular song, Lost Youth, it starts high up in the valley where the snow still lies, high up in the shadow of the mountainside. So it's kind of, yeah, on a bit of upland, uh, north of England. Yeah, so we, we just, we really enjoyed enjoyed that. I think the first song on the album, it actually opens with the sound of Brent Geese. Uh, and that one is called Between the Salt Marsh and the Sea. and it kind of describes the relationship really between the, the marsh and the sea and the kind of tides and, and that, um, you know, the fact that this, this habitat is changing twice a day and, uh, and, it, and I've kind of used that as a metaphor for a, a relationship, you know, a bit of a kind of like with or without you, but without, without Bono, replacing Bono with, the, um, with some geese, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they should do that with more U2 songs, I think. <laughs> replacing Bono with various different words. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm going to get carried away if I if I keep going down that avenue. But yeah, it, for any listeners who haven't heard what we're talking about here, I will add some little snippets to the editing process of this. But the songs that we've mentioned there are great, and even the songs that don't have birds on generally have birds in the videos. Think and Get Low and Man on Wire. You know, you've got great, great videos. One featuring a peregrine. Do go and check those out. They must have been fun to film. I think those ones. Oh, absolutely, so much fun. Yeah, I Get Low features grey lag geese and that was even more i mean sorry i know you're you're a big peregrine fan but <laughs> yeah the grey lags were even more exciting for us because of the fact that we were right there next to them in flight these birds were imprinted had imprinted on someone called rose buck who was with us and in fact rose and lloyd buck basically devoted their lives to rearing and living with birds particularly for the use in 
films, documentaries and such like. So these particular geese, it's a bit of a shock to discover that, you know, they, they were actually used in David Attenborough, you know, wildlife documentary. Oh, bursting bubbles for me there, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> she was basically hiding in this car and we, we were in the car driving along a, a runway in Gloucestershire and the geese were literally flying right next to us. Like we could, you know, if we wanted to reach out and touch them from the cars, we zoomed along this runway at 40 miles an hour. And yeah, it was just so exhilarating. Unfortunately, most people who see the video just assume it's all CGI and it, none of it's real. But um... no, not at all. It was it, it's really obvious. You can actually see the delight on particularly yourself and Ollie, who are in the back of the car higher up. And yeah. you can you can see you almost like desperate to reach out and touch them. Yeah, no, it looks it looks really great. At this point, I'm going to ask you my silly zero punches pulled question. Zero punches pulled. We've been talking a lot about different songs of yours with birds very much either in the background or as part of the song. And I wondered whether there was any songs that you feel would be enhanced by chucking some birds into the mix. I've thought of a few different songs and you can tell me which birds you think would elevate these songs even higher. So the first one I wondered about was Phil Collins' In the Air Tonight. Oh, okay. I, I mean, instantly I'm kind of, it's obviously tonight, it's night. So I'm, uh, the, the classic would be maybe a barn house screeching or something. Give it a little bit of extra edge and uh, <laughs> make it sound maybe a little bit more metal perhaps um, so yeah maybe we'll go we'll go a, a screeching barn owl on that one excellent choice yeah i was wondering about a, a, a night jar or a tawny but yeah screeching barn owl i think it's even better <laughs> the other one i was thinking about was sympathy for the devil by the rolling stones that you know there's a lot of sort of devil imagery in birds isn't there and i wondered yeah okay let me think i mean i suppose could have some sort of wailing, maybe something like a lesser black bat girl kind of. Doing, ah, ah. You, know, you could have a bit of that in there, and maybe um, the obvious, the other one that comes to mind is it is the Manx Shearwater, just for a bit of extra devil bird spookiness. Yeah, yeah, they've got this weird kind of gobbly witchy yeah, yeah. song. Yeah, that might work. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, no, they were great. I was thinking Screaming Swifts, but no, they are they are much better, much better choices. I think. I wondered about when Doves Cry by Prince, but then I, th I think really it, I would just chuck a collared dove on there and a peregrine, and then it changes the song entirely. What do you think about Three Little Birds by Bob Marley? Good one. Yeah, um, you could almost re-record the, the whole song, replacing the different parts with with birds. I mean, reggae's always got a nice bit of bass in it doesn't it so i suppose you'd want a, maybe a bittern or something in there for a bit of um bit of low-end oomph and yeah yeah um, a kind of repetitive like the kind of offbeat guitar could be something like i don't know corn crates just you know constantly going on doing the same thing and <laughs> singing sweet songs i suppose you'd have to put something a bit nicer sounding in there for the uh, to go with the the sort of sweetness of the of the lyrics so I don't know, maybe something classic like a, a nice fluty blackbird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a much better answer than I was thinking. I would have gone Wood Warbler, Red Stark and Pied Flycatcher and then Bob Marley's instantly in a deciduous wood <laughs> in England. <laughs> you know, but I literally took the three little birds 
literally. Before we move on to the five birds we're going to talk about today, I just wanted to ask you if you could tell the people listening about a little story that you wrote in the new book the British Trust for Ornithology have published called Into the Red about the, the 70 birds on the red list um, that I've been working on with them. And you wrote about finding a very rare bird. Yes, I did. I mean, I can't, I'll be honest, it was my intern who I work with at the wetlands who actually found it first. So yeah, credit is due to Ezra who was working on, on the reed bed that day. And it's a species called a Savvy's warbler, which is, yeah, describe it as a classic little brown job with no distinguishing features whatsoever, really, other than its song, which is really distinctive. In the book, I described it a bit like, you know, dragging a, a fingernail along a comb. It's kind of this really dry rolling clicking sound and they do a really good good job at kind of hiding themselves while singing few species do this but they kind of turn their heads grasshopper warbler is probably one of the closest relatives that does a similar thing but they'll turn their heads around as they sing from deep in the reed bed and it it means it's really hard to, to pick out where where it's coming from they keep throwing their voice really but anyway, Ezra found this bird and was was pretty excited and put the news out. And I don't know if you if you're a, a Twitcher kit, but you know this actually brought people in from from far and wide to the wetlands. Unfortunately, people have to do have to pay to come into the to the wetland centre. It's you know how we fund uh, the charity and and the captive collection of birds as well. We've got there. But uh, yeah, one one person came in. It was also during COVID, so there was you know, what was it, signing in sheets for track and trace. Feels wonderfully long time ago now, doesn't it? But one person wasn't willing to wait. He was too too keen to get out there. So he literally barged past the queue and uh, and barged into the centre. And the, the centre manager who was on duty asked him to come back and said, you know, we need to take your details. Somehow it kind of escalated quite quickly and... <laughs> Sentiment and manager said, right, well, I'm going to call the police if you don't come back and, and sign in. And the guy stormed off, waving his tripod out to the reserve. And centre manager did indeed call the police. And I don't think anyone expected three riot bands to show up, but it was insane. We had about 10 fully armoured police men and women walking out. And, and, and it was quite, quite a surreal scene because, you know, to see these policemen just suddenly emerging into this you know beautiful peaceful um, reed bed habitat and just the, the sound of the reeds rustling and yeah eventually they got up to this point where where the guy had, had arrived and unfortunately uh, escorted him off off site <laughs> before he even had a chance to see the bird that's absolutely classic I, I love the fact three riot vans rocked up and just yeah. <laughs> hauked him out of there and he didn't get to see it there's a, a lesson in there for all of us i think you, you know <laughs> behave well on twitches i i tend to stick within the county yeah you know rather than traveling too far afield i will go you know within northumberland but yeah. uh, and that was a county first bird i believe as well that's wasn't it right yeah yeah it was yeah first one for Carmarthenshire. so uh Brilliant. Yeah, created a bit of a buzz for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Right. Well, it's time that we started talking about the five birds on your list today. Not necessarily your favourite birds. There's a bit of a theme that runs through them, as we'll discover. Let's crack on and talk about your first choice, bird number one. Bird number one. one, one, one. My bird number one, I did mention earlier, is the great tit. So 
I decided to theme my five choices by my career, really, because I've kind of found my sort of career has gone through pretty much five different species and in quite in five very different jobs. So, yeah, I'll I'll tell you about those. So, yeah, great tits were the first bird I studied and worked with professionally after leaving university. And it was in this legendary uh, woodland called Whiteham Woods, which is the, the home of a very long-term in-depth field study of these nesting birds. They've got nest boxes dotted all around the woods. The job was to wander around the woods through the spring, check the boxes and, and record what was in there and see how many chicks were in there and weigh them and, and put rings on them when they got to the right age. And it was just beautiful. It was glorious spring weather, I remember, and bluebells just carpets of bluebells throughout these these amazing oak woodlands and uh yeah so i just thought you know how lucky i am to to have uh, landed this job straight out of university working with with birds and doing this uh, research and uh, I'll, I'll never forget it so that's that was great tits it was such a i mean I, I remember reading about this numerous times over the years it was a massive project wasn't it the the white and woods is it still running very much so, yeah. It's yeah. and it's even though they've they've studied everything from you know bird families and and genetics right down to, you know, the parasites that live on the on the birds and the feathers and, you know, the eggs and all sorts of things. Everything you could you could possibly think of with these birds. But one of the most significant things that they got from this huge data set is the phenology, the seasonal changes year on year. And having measured it for so long, they can see that spring has moved by weeks maybe even a month or something now it it starts earlier than it used to and and the laying dates of these birds these birds are so kind of they need to be so tuned in and they they have to time their egg laying so perfectly with the leaf burst because that's where the food comes from is all the caterpillars that um, you know come with the leaf burst in the trees and so, yeah, they, they proved to be in a really good long-term study of seasonal changes resulting from climate change. So, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. And I'm sure it'll go on for a, a lot longer. When you were there, how many nest boxes were there? Because they're, they're over a thousand or something, I'm sure, at one point, weren't they? Uh, I'm afraid I, I simply cannot remember. I think I, even just me alone, might have had something like 400 to check i mean obviously a lot of those wouldn't have been used or as the season went on you know i wouldn't have to check them anymore but it was yeah hundreds and hundreds i i'm afraid i can't remember exactly no that's okay it, it, it's but it's, it just gives an idea of the the scale of this project yeah you yeah. know and the fact that it's been running for 50 60 years or however long it is now it's probably even longer now 70 i think, I think possibly but yeah a long time yeah yeah and i was reading recently in a book by stephen lovat and he's talking about you know obviously listening to birds through lockdown when the pandemic first struck. And he, he mentioned a little bit in there about the difference between urban great tits and great tits that live in sort of wilder spaces and the fact that they have to sing more loudly to get over the, the background noise, first of all, but then also change the pitch um, because the background rumble of engines is quite lower in the register. So great tits have to adapt their repertoire to be a little bit more higher pitched but the ladies like the lower pitch (laughs) so there was all sorts of quandaries going on there with the great tits and uh you know having to having to adapt but still be desirable you know really interesting wow Uh, right we'll fire into your second choice bird number two. two 
Yeah, okay. Number two is the guillemot. And this was my second job with birds. And that was down in Dorset where I was working for the RSPCA. And they were trialling a basically how effective rehabilitation is for birds that have been oiled. So my job was really working with birds that were in the, you know, looking like they had, they were in with a good chance of survival. So they'd been cleaned and they were sort of hopefully starting to build up weight again. And they basically got to kind of recover enough that their feathers develop waterproofing again and they can build up strength essentially. So what we were doing was we were going out from Portland in Dorset out to a floating cage in the sea and it was a cage that had an underwater uh, net so it went down a couple of meters down and it had a above you know above water net as well so it was a huge big cave it was probably something like 20 meters by 20 meters or so so great big thing and the, and the guillemots were sort of swimming around in there um in you know as close to a, a natural scenario as they could without being actually free uh, while we threw sprats at them and, you know, <laughs> monitored them really to see how they, how they were getting on. And it was, I mean, yeah, mixed success really. But um, some of them made it, which was, which was a re- really good feeling. But, you know, I think it, the, the kind of finding was of the study was that really you, you can invest huge amounts of money in, in trying to rehabilitate these birds but a very very small fraction will make it and then the ones that even do get released you don't know if they're going to survive the rest of the winter anyway so it felt like you know the money would would be best spent on trying to prevent these these things happening um and yeah it's just really not a good thing for a bird to to get oil inside them and on them and uh yeah, it turns out there's lots of these little events going on all the time. It's not necessarily the big newsworthy stories about tankers um, running aground. It's I think it's, you know, in some cases, boats just cleaning out engines or, you know, little spills out of sea and the mm. birds just find their way um, into them, unfortunately. So, mm. yeah, but um, it was a great experience for me. It was very um, surreal few months ago. I lived in a, a hotel in uh, next to the prison ship in Castletown in Portland and there was no um, kitchen or anything so you know we had the choice of either spending all our pay on pub pub every night or um, what we decided to do was basically bring in a microwave a George Foreman grill and uh, get creative with uh, with the cooking and you know there was the odd guillemot as well that we smuggled smuggled into the hotel when it wasn't when it wasn't doing so well so we had one in the bath for a few weeks until the um, hotel staff literally smelt something a bit fishy going on. <laughs> and, yeah. and, it reminds me of that old urban myth of the child at Edinburgh Zoo who steals a penguin in the back and puts it in the backpack and the parents find it in the in the bath later that night. <laughs> and, um, I had a horrible feeling that you were going to say that you smuggled a guillemot into the George Foreman grill. <laughs> <laughs> Because obviously I knew they were um, they were <laughs> plundered in their in their hundreds of thousands, weren't they? In, in times gone past, but mainly for their eggs and right, um, yes. feathers and things like that, rather than for the um, the tastiness of their meat, I guess. A lot of strange things found their way into that George Foreman grill, but no, no guillemots. <laughs> Good, I'm I'm glad to hear it.
Gillibots is not a bird that we've talked about on this podcast before, but they are fabulous birds. I love them. We obviously have uh, quite a lot up here on the Northumberland coast. Mm. They have the smallest nest territory of any British bird. You know, they have obviously these massive colonies where they all share a tiny little piece of ledge, don't they? But some of the spaces that they have for their nesting can be just barely a couple of inches yeah, or oh, they pack so tightly, don't they, onto these ledges? Yeah, I don't think they, they barely make a nest, do they? I think it's often the, the egg is pretty much on bare rock, isn't it? And they yeah. kind of uh, just by virtue of being so packed together, they keep them warm enough to to incubate, don't they? I'd have to say probably a seabird seabird colony is it's an all senses experience, isn't it? Because it's it's this absolute raucous sound they make and. It's, it's constantly toing toing and from. It's like a big city, isn't it? And then there's the this great smell that wafts up as well. Sometimes yeah. if you're standing in the right direction. So, absolutely. Yeah, it, oh, the other thing is that these colonies. I didn't realise they were called loomeries. That's a that was a new oh, wow. term to me. Yeah, like that's not a word that I'd come across before. Anyway, let's move on to your third choice. Bird number three. 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 <laughs> great. Okay, so this is my third job with birds. This is a more exotic one, and a white-breasted thrasher, and these only live on two islands in the uh, Lesser Antilles, Caribbean Windward Islands, and the two islands are St Lucia and Martinique, and I spent a good few months out on St Lucia with a Cambridge University study of these birds, really looking at their ecology and threats to their habitats and threats to their survival yeah so this was a a hell of an experience I mean it it wasn't all lovely because we were in the woods on the uh, the sort of wild side of St Lucia it was seriously seriously humid and you know the the mosquitoes were pretty relentless sometimes it was actually refreshing to have you know one of these torrential tropical downpours of rain because you know at least the mosquitoes would be (laughs) would be gone for a bit (laughs) thankfully out of the woods we were on the on the coast, on the east coast, which is the kind of ocean side. So there's plenty of nice fresh breeze out there. So you, you get a bit of relief from it all. But um, we used to survey for them with this interesting technique, which was to go into the woods and wander around making this noise. And the reason was that that's the noise that the thrashers make if they see a predator and particularly in that in you know, their case, most often the predator would be a snake, um, something like a constrictor, a boa, a boa that would find its way into the nest and eat the eggs. And uh, yeah, so if you made that noise, or if, sorry, if, if the thrashers made that noise, it would attract other thrashers and it would attract lots of other birds. Actually, they'd come and see what the fuss was about. So that was our survey te- technique to go out and make that noise and um, and we'd see if any thrashers showed up to see what was what was going on and then and did that work did they did it actually attract yeah, them it really did and you know we we as with the great tits i mentioned earlier we were doing some um mist netting of the birds which means we we try and catch them so that we could put colored rings on so that we could get to know the the individual birds and see where the territories started and finished and whether we were constantly attracting the same birds or different birds and um yeah, it was it was a really interesting interesting study, and uh, and even you know after the study finished, you know I remember going around the London Underground and seeing the field worker that I was with 
in the distance. They didn't see me, but I'd started making that noise and, and it attracted them across the, <laughs> across the underground station. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, an amazing experience to go and, to go and work out there for a few months. I love that. It's great to think that, that that's just calling more into the fight. Come, yeah. come on, lads. Yeah. I need, yeah. See what the uh, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I did try to find some interesting facts about white-breasted thrashers, and um, I guess because they're so restricted in their range to those two islands, that there wasn't an awful lot interesting folklore about these birds or anything like that. So, for once, I have, I have nothing to say about a species on Golden Grenades. I don't have any interesting facts about the white-breasted thrasher, other than the fact that they sound really metal. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll move on. Bird number four. Okay, so my next job with birds was my PhD, really. So maybe not strictly speaking a job, but it was, uh, yeah, three or four four years studying ducks in southwest London. So from the exotic islands of the Caribbean to the Raysbury and Staines gravel pits and reservoirs in the winter. So yeah, it couldn't be much more the contrast, but it was a um, yeah a life changing experience for many reasons. Not not just because of the birds, but also because that's where I am um, when I met my bandmates and started the band Stornaway. But essentially, I would be going out through the winter and and counting ducks, and that was the gist of it. Really, I was trying to work out what uh, Gadwall and Shoveler in particular liked about these water bodies and why they were so keen on coming there every winter and there was a basically a kind of cluster of these lakes and reservoirs that together supported an internationally important population of these birds so it's quite an unusual scenario in that all these water bodies are man-made they're, they're kind of following the Thames floodplain and people had been extracting gravel and and creating reservoirs obviously for to supply London and then using these water bodies for all sorts of things. You've got, you know, carp fishing fisheries, you've got uh, water skiing areas, you've got, you know, active gravel extraction areas. Uh, one of them's now the kind of location for Thorpe. What's it called? Uh, the amusement, amusement park. park. Absolutely, yeah. So, in fact, yeah, I yeah. had a free pass there, which was great fun. So I remember doing field work. I'd occasionally just go across onto the island in, with my binoculars and get on a quick roller coaster at lunchtime so that was <laughs> but uh chilly experience out there in the winter but I got lots of inf- interesting data and and just you know worked out that these birds would basically move around the area as a whole you know they weren't sort of staying on the same reservoirs or or lakes throughout the winter it would be they'd be using them all depending on where the food were and where the disturbance was and and that sort of thing so it was um it was an interesting study. I, I did get, as I've mentioned, quite distracted by the fact that my, my band was uh, was starting up at the time and we were playing ridiculous numbers of gigs. You know, in the early days, we'd be playing multiple times a week. So I wasn't maybe working as hard as, as I should have been, but I did manage to finish the PhD in the end. <laughs> so we have shovelers to thank for Stornoway. Exactly. I mean, most people get absolutely sick of their PhDs. I, I did as well, but I have to say, I've still got a real soft spot for for these these shovelers. As they're such beautiful ducks, and they've got they, they can't help but looking a little bit silly, really, with that great big uh, big spoon on their on the front of their heads. Um, but they are they are beautiful beautiful birds, and sometimes you see them feeding on plankton on on zooplankton. They'll kind of create a little a little whirlpool eddy 
by swimming in a pair or even sometimes up to, you know, a little gang of five or six of them going constantly in circles and creating a little vortex. But it looks like they've gone they've gone mad just swimming around and around in circles, but they're basically drawing in the plankton to this little whirlpool and then filtering it like a mini whale with their toothed beaks. That's a bit like the dolphin footage that you see on uh, Edinburgh, you know, shows <laughs> when they when they do that and they get all the fish into a whirlpool. They've nicked it off shovelers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are stunning looking birds in terms of their, their plumage anyway. You know, they're, they're, they're lovely birds. I, I'm guilty of, you know, scanning around looking for, you know, what's out there and, you know, I'll go shoveler, shoveler, coot, tufted duck, and I'll just be looking for the more interesting things. But actually, you know, they are great birds and they, and they are, they look ridiculous, you know, with this build that's longer than their heads and the the base is, you know, narrower. Well, I think the, the tip is twice as wide as the base of the bill, isn't it? So it, it just creates this shovel type here and say that they are great birds and and very very weird looking uh, <laughs> okay let's let's crack on and we'll talk about your fifth and final choice today bird number five, five, five. yep my final choice is the lapwing and these birds keep me up at night in the in the spring they uh, this is my current job really i work as a nature reserve manager for the wildfire wetlands trust and one of the key species that we're trying to protect at the nature reserve is the lapwing. They are really heavily, you know, red, they're red listed birds, unfortunately, and they don't nest successfully anywhere in Carmarthenshire anymore, apart from at the, uh, the reserve where I work. And they only nest, they only still nest with us because we do, do ridiculous amounts of work for them. They're so, so fussy. They they need a very specific type of habitat for their nesting and for their rearing of chicks. And we are basically, you know, constantly fighting the, the wetland, which is just wanting to turn into a woodland at all, all times, really. So, um, yeah, we're kind of cutting scrub and, and trying to control rushes. And we're getting grazing and we're controlling water levels and you know creating in some cases you know cockle shell areas for nesting couldn't do any more for them really and then they you know they still decide to go and all die in the spring so you know kind of, um it's a tricky one because they nest on the ground their chicks are so vulnerable and they're just like these amazingly cute cotton wool balls on on sticks and uh, unfortunately you know crows and gulls will just cruise around and just pick them off as a little little snack and it doesn't take long before you've gone from four chicks down to down to one or none um but you know they seem to have good years and bad years and and overall we have managed to increase their population which is which is a good feeling but yeah not through uh not through lack of trying but i think we're up to about on average you know 15 pairs or so which which doesn't sound like many at all, but uh, it's it's a, it's a significant increase on what we had a few years ago. So we'll keep at it for now, in a way. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the, the the nature of the kind of conservation work you do. Successes, but then also you know tinged with this overwhelming sort of feeling maybe that you're that you're battling against something that is out with your control. You know, unless you do 
take draconian measures but i guess yeah you know the, the fact that you're seeing that population increase must keep you going yeah it does yeah it does um i mean every year it's it's something else like one year we are unexpectedly found um that uh, hedgehogs were were predating the they d- developed a taste for for lapwing eggs and at night the hedgehogs were, would go out snuffling around and, and eating all the eggs so then you've got two different you know threatened species and it's it's a it's a real challenge but um yeah we'll, we'll keep at it i i absolutely love lapwings and particularly you know talking about bird songs earlier the lapwings the noises they make are, are really extraordinary and you know it's a kind of really electronic almost sound and uh, it for me that's that's really the sound of spring because they'll start quite early you know in february they'll start displaying and singing and they'll do these wonderful sort of display flights as well where they sort of swoop around and beat their wings so you can hear the sound of the the uh, the wind through the feathers and um yeah it's a kind of you know first bright spring days of February we'll start to hear those those calls and songs so that, that's a good feeling after a hard winter of scrub bashing yeah yeah no and it's a, it is a fabulous call it always it, when I was younger always used to remind me of Star Wars for some reason there's something quite you know mechanically sort of a you know not bird-like about, yeah. about it you know it's a, it's a very very strange sort of uh, sound which gives it most of its vernacular names i think it's the it's the bird that's got more names more vernacular names than any other species 22 or more isn't it a, wow. you know peewit and pie wipe and peasy weep which Excellent. is my personal favorite which i would never heard of until i read about it in oh, birds I Britannica. calling them that i think <laughs> <laughs> peasy weep right brian that's us come to the end of it you know it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you every week i always ask the, the special guest to name their their favorite of these five species the the bird that will become their spirit guide their companion through the desolate wasteland left after the environmental armageddon so which of these five species will be the the bird on your shoulder or by your side Oh, that's that's a really difficult one. Um, I'd like to say lapwing, but actually, they I think it would just be too stressful because I'd just be constantly worried it'd be gonna die. Um, <laughs> I, I, ha- I think because I have already shared a, a hotel with the guillemot, I'd probably you know I might go for guillemot. I know we can we can rub along, and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and actually I, I've always been really drawn to. You know the islands off uh, Wales, not far from where where I live, and going out to see those amazing seabird colonies. And uh, yeah, so I think guillemots. I might go for that today. They're a good one for for making me think of a bit of wild coast and a nice May day on a on an island somewhere. Yeah, keep your spirits up. Great, a good choice. And handily, it creates a lovely image of that almost penguin-esque upright stance and then the idea of you you two waltzing off into the sunset together. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Brian. Thanks so much for coming on and good luck looking after those lapwings in the spring. Oh, thank you so much, Kit. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed our chat today. If you have done, I'm sure you'll enjoy Stornoway's music, so do go and seek that out if you're not aware of them already. Bye for now.